Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, Episode 6, A New Order. We left off last week with the arrival of warrior rule in Japan. To recap, the Hojo family, after the death of the third and final Minamoto Shogun, ruled over Japan using the title of Shikken, or Regent. The Hojo were not technically shoguns in their own right, but held essentially the same powers a shogun would, so that functionally there was no particular distinction between a Hojo Shikin and the Minamoto shoguns. Now, once the Hojo assumed control of the country, their first order of business was to suppress all of their rivals. There was a lot of resentment against the new regime, particularly amongst the Kyoto aristocracy. The Kuge aristocrats in Kyoto still saw themselves as rulers of the country, and they looked for pretty much any chance they could get to overthrow these new upstart warriors. All of this discontent in Kyoto flared into a short-lived rebellion in 1221, referred to as the Jokyu Rebellion. One of the retired emperors, named Gotoba, attempted to lead a revolt against the Hojo. He built an army around those with a political grudge against the new regime, particularly the few remaining survivors of the Taira family. However, his ambitions were short-lived. His army was crushed in a single decisive battle near the city of Uji, which is to the south of Kyoto. Gotoba was exiled, and the court was stripped completely of all its remaining power. However, the court still controlled substantial economic estates surrounding Kyoto. The new shogunate was also forced to suppress an independent northern realm led by a branch of the Fujiwara family. When the Fujiwara had begun to lose power about a hundred years earlier, a small branch had gone to the north and set up an independent state called Oshu, based out of the modern city of Hiraizumi in Iwate Prefecture. At its height, Oshu controlled about a third of Japan's landmass, and its capital at Hiraizumi was one of the largest cities in the country. However, once the Minamoto had triumphed over the Taira, Minamoto no Yoritomo turned his attention to this northern splinter state, and in the end the Hojo finished the job for him. The northern Fujiwara family was destroyed, and Oshu was forcibly reincorporated into the central government. Second on the priority list was establishing the form of this new government. The Hojo took some very important steps here, establishing a very small central government bureaucracy, as well as a deliberative council, which allowed some feedback to be given by local warrior clans to the central government. It also established a new law code specifically for warrior families, setting standards of conduct for them. However, they never really succeeded in creating a centralized state. For one thing, local warriors and warrior families were still supported by their showing grants. As long as warrior families continued to have these essentially untouchable sources of income, they had a power base they could draw from that the Hojo could not affect. As such, there was a distinct limit on how far the Hojo could push any centralized reforms. In addition, though it was effectively powerless, the previous Heian period Ritsuryo system remained in place. The court continued to appoint prefectural governors, who in theory governed over the provinces. In theory, the Hojo only controlled the military families. The imperial court, supposedly, controlled all civilian affairs. Thus, the Hojo had to pay at least nominal lip service to the interests of the imperial governors. While potential troublemakers could usually be disposed of by some means, either bribery, threats, cajoling, or in some cases murder, care still had to be taken to ensure that opposition from the remains of the Ritsuryo system did not give the Hojo's rivals among the Buke families an excuse to attempt to take them down. 
This dynamic limited the freedom of movement the Hojo had, though not to any great extent, when it came to imposing reforms nationally. As such, the Hojo system was essentially one of personal relationships. The Hojo Shikken relied on his ability to personally inspire loyalty among the warrior families in order to sort of guide them in the direction he found useful. He could not enforce his will militarily to any great extent, since the independent power bases held by the warrior families meant that if unified, they could potentially resist him. In addition, the Hojo had to take care not to overly antagonize the imperial court, push them too far, and they could do what Prince Mochihito had done to the Taira, act as a rallying symbol for potential political enemies. This structure meant that the Hojo system was stable only as long as the person on top of it was a skilled and able political actor. In addition to these domestic issues, the Hojo, during the 13th century, began to face a growing foreign threat. To be specific, the Mongol Yuan dynasty. By 1266, the Mongols had conquered Korea and northern China, and were less than a decade away from finishing off the last remnants of China's Song dynasty. The Mongol ruler of China, Kublai Khan, dispatched a letter in 1266 to the, quote, King of Japan, which meant the Shiken, demanding that he submit to Mongol rule. Hojo Tokimune, who was the Shiken at the time, ignored these demands by refusing to respond to the letter. Several more emissaries followed, but each was denied permission to land and sent back home. Kublai Khan was, of course, terribly insulted, but he could not respond immediately. After all, he still had a war against China to finish. However, by 1274, he had the Song Dynasty on the ropes, and felt confident enough in the inevitability of victory to split his forces and punish the Hojo. Kublai Khan dispatched a naval invasion force to Kyushu, with troops numbering somewhere between 10 and 20,000 men. However, he was met by a Hojo force roughly equal in number, as the Hojo had known the Mongols were coming, and had spent months assembling the largest forces they could. Early on, Japanese numbers proved little match for Mongol tactics and ferocity. However, in the middle of the engagement, a typhoon came into the area where the Mongol fleet was anchored and sank a large number of the Mongol ships with troops still aboard. The Hojo took advantage of this reversal of fortune and were able to stop the Mongol advance and then drive them off. Kublai Khan, however, was not known for his ability to accept defeat and sent yet more messengers, stating that he planned to return to Japan and in the end the Japanese could not win. Tokimune listened to this advice received Kublai Khan's messengers, and then gave his reply by imprisoning them, beheading them, and sending the heads back to Kublai. Enraged, Kublai prepared a larger assault. Tokimune, likewise, prepared to receive it. He began to assemble and train another army, and prepare coastal defenses for another invasion. Tokimune was also an extremely devout Buddhist, and he arranged rituals to invoke the protection of the gods against the Mongol invasion. The next attack finally arrived in 1281, after two years spent building the fleet and training the army to massive expense for the Mongols. We're not sure quite how many men Kublai Khan sent on the second expedition, but our best guess is somewhere around 140,000. The Hojo, meanwhile, for all their efforts, could muster no more than 60,000 to meet them. 
Initial fighting was very fierce, as a smaller force landed in Kyushu and spent the summer of 1281 harassing and raiding the Japanese armies there. One larger landing attempt was fought off, and at one point the Japanese even launched a night raid against enemy ships, burning several of them in the bay. This forced the smaller Mongol force to retreat, group up with a larger Mongol force, and lead one final assault. And in the middle of this final assault, yet again, another typhoon swept in and sank the Mongol fleets. By some estimates, as many as two-thirds of the Mongolian fleet ended up on the bottom of the bay. As a side note, for the better part of 70 years now, there have been sporadic attempts by archaeologists to recover artifacts from the ruins of the Mongol fleet. Since 1991, efforts have been stepped up, and several extremely impressive artifacts have been extracted from the remains of the Mongol fleet. I've posted an article with some links to images of various uncovered artifacts from the invasion, which I hope you'll find interesting. The twin typhoons, which sank the Mongol invasion fleets in 1274 and 1281, were seen as divine intervention to protect Japan, just as Tokimune had prayed for. The Japanese referred to them as kamikaze, meaning divine wind. Later on, this term was, as many of you probably already know, appropriated to refer to suicide aerial squads used by the Imperial Japanese Army and Navy towards the end of the Pacific War. Kublai Khan wanted to try his invasion again, but was distracted by ongoing wars in Southeast Asia. After his death in 1294, his successors declined to invest further ruinous sums in attempting another invasion of Japan. The defeat of the Mongol invasions is often described as the greatest triumph of the Hojo regime, and undoubtedly it was. After all, Hojo Japan was only the second power in history ever to fight off the Mongol invasions after the 1260 victory of the Egyptian Mamluks at the Battle of Ain Jalut. However, victory over the Mongols also sowed the seeds of the Hojo's destruction. The Hojo used their relationships with various Buke families to call up warriors for their fight. Normally, some recompense was provided for these kind of services, usually either in land, money, or both. But since this had been a purely defensive war and not one of conquest, there was no land or money to distribute. The result of this were a lot of angry warriors with a strong grudge against the Hojo family, feeling they'd been cheated, essentially, out of what was rightfully theirs for what they'd done. Many of the temples which had prayed as Tokimune requested also expected some recompense for all those rituals. Even today, when you go to a Japanese temple or a Shinto shrine, some kind of donation is considered normal, and it is after all considerably more impressive to defeat a foreign invasion than it is for the gods to get you a nice score on your college entrance exams. The Hojo were already failing to pay their warriors off, however, and they couldn't pay this money to the temples at all. This angered a lot of extremely influential religious figures, and don't forget at this time, some of these monasteries are still armed. There was also an appearance of favoritism for Hojo family members. A lot of key command positions went to members of the Hojo clan, and those family members were very well compensated for their service to the Bakufu. Of course, this looked particularly bad in light of the repeated Hojo refrain that they could not afford to pay either the buke or the temples. The end result of all this was that the invasions generated a lot of ill will towards the Hojo family. The metaphorical powder kegs of an anti-Hojo movement had been set, all they needed was a spark to set them off. That spark was generously provided by the Emperor Gosaga, who was inconsiderate enough to die in 1274 without naming a clear heir. His two sons took to quarreling over the succession and asked the Hojo to step in and settle the issue. 
Since Hojo Tokimune was already busy defeating one invasion and preparing for another, he put together a rather shoddy stopgap solution. His decision was to generate a system of alternate succession between the two sons and their heirs from that point onward. In other words, son A would inherit first, after he died, the child of son B would inherit, then the child of son A, and so on and so forth. This fix works alright until the 1320s, when one of Gosaga's grandsons, named Goldaigo, attempted to seize permanent control for his line. He maneuvered to build a power base among warrior families, courtiers, and religious officials alienated from the Hojo, and then struck in 1331 by jettisoning the Hojo settlement and naming his own son as his heir. The Hojo exiled him in response, and he used this as an excuse to do as Mochihito had once done and launch a call to arms. There was an enthusiastic response from many who felt alienated from the Hojo. The decisive blow came when an extremely talented general named Ashikaga Takauji betrayed the Shiken Hojo Moritoki and switched sides to the imperial cause. This was particularly ironic in that Takauji had actually been the original one to take charge of exiling Godaigo. Takauji turned his armies in the Hojo, and in 1333 the family was destroyed and the last of their clan committed suicide in the family temple of Toshoji in modern Kanagawa. Godaigo, flush with victory, proclaimed the restoration of imperial rule over Japan. He intended, in other words, to strip the bouquet of the powers they had enjoyed for the past century and restore the old Heian system. However, that did not sit particularly well with Takauji, who had planned to simply take the place of the Hojo and rule over a docile and obedient emperor. This issue came to a head in 1336. Takauji and his men attacked the supporters of Godaigo and forced the emperor out of Kyoto. Godaigo and his supporters established a southern court which ruled in rivalry to a puppet northern imperial court, the northern court being composed of emperors who were appointed by and subordinate to Takauji. Takauji then completed his coup by having his puppet emperors declare him shogun. For the next 60 years, the northern and southern courts fought an on-again, off-again war, referred to as the Nanbokcho War, or the war between the northern and southern courts. Victory for the Ashikaga family finally came in 1392, when the southern court, defeated militarily, accepted a proposal by Ashikaga Takauji's grandson Yoshimitsu to reunify the two feuding imperial courts. As a side note, the official line of Japanese emperors, as promoted by the imperial house today, includes the southern but not the northern courts. This ordering was worked out by scholars in the 19th century working for the imperial family. They chose the southern line for a variety of reasons. For one, in the 19th century, the imperial family had just overthrown the last shogunate, and the idea of imperial independence from warrior rule appealed to these scholars. Furthermore, the southern court supposedly possessed the imperial regalia, the three treasures given by Amaterasu to the emperor that we talked about back in the second episode. Of course, there is absolutely no way to verify that, so you can take it with a grain of salt. Besides, I doubt official vindication mattered much to people who'd been dead for 600 years at that point. At any rate, Ashikaga rule was backdated from 1336, and their new government was referred to as the Muromachi Bakfu, so-called because the government was run out of a complex on Kyoto's Muromachi Avenue. That, then, is all the politics I'd like to cover for today, but before we end for today I'd like to discuss some cultural developments of this period. In particular, 
the arrival of new Buddhist sects from the continent, and the establishment of no theater. First, let's talk a bit about Buddhism. During the late Heian and early Kamakura periods, two new sects arrived in Japan, and by the Muromachi period, both were flourishing. The first was Zen Buddhism, which, in some of its aspects at least, is fairly well known in the West. Zen Buddhism is derived from Chinese Chan Buddhism. Unlike the Tendai Buddhism of the Heian period, Zen Buddhism de-emphasizes mystical knowledge or esoteric practice, instead favoring enlightenment through personal insight, meditation, and interaction with skilled teachers. There are two primary sects of Zen Buddhism during this time. The first is called Rinzai, and was brought to Japan in 1187 by a monk named Eisai. Eisai accepted patronage from the Kamakura shoguns and other high bakufu officials, and Rinzai Zen became very popular with the upper strata of the warrior class. The other sect is called Soto, and was brought to Japan by a monk named Dogen in 1227. Unlike Eisai, Dogen rejected patronage by the samurai because of their refusal to undergo rigorous religious practice and because of their refusal to renounce violence. Since, unlike Eisai, Dogen could not turn to samurai patrons for protection, Dogen and his followers were ruthlessly hounded by the Tendai monks of Kyoto, particularly those of the famous and ancient temple of Enryakuji. He and his followers were eventually forced to flee the city. He retreated back to the hinterlands of Japan and founded a temple called Eiheiji, where he lived with his followers in relative obscurity. There are a great many doctrinal differences between Rinzai and Soto Zen Buddhism, but for now, what I want to concentrate on is that Soto Zen was not patronized by the upper classes, and Rinzai Zen was. As a result, Soto Zen did not do very well for itself in terms of spreading. Rinzai Zen, however, acted a niche for itself among the upper classes. However, after the fall of the last shogunate, the positions of the two sects underwent a rapid reversal. Most Zen practitioners you'll find in the West today are of the Soto sect. The other major Buddhist movement to arrive in Japan at this time is called Pure Land or Jodo Buddhism. This variant of Buddhism is based on devotion to a specific Buddha named Amida in Japanese, or Amitabha in Sanskrit. Pure Land Buddhism posits that Buddhist teaching has decayed over time, and that in the current ages it is impossible to obtain nirvana without direct intercession by a Buddha. Thus, Pure Land Buddhists express devotion to the Buddha Amida through the chanting of a religious slogan called the Nenbutsu. The Nenbutsu is composed of the words Namu Amida Butsu in Japanese, which translate to Praise to the Amida Buddha. By chanting this in a devoted fashion, a follower will come to the attention of Amida, who will then intercede and bring the devotee to the Pure Land, where they will obtain enlightenment. Importantly, this means that anyone, male, female, monk, or not, can obtain Buddhahood as long as they truly believe in the power of the Nenbutsu. This is an extremely egalitarian departure from the norms of East Asian Buddhism, which usually require practitioners to be male and generally monks before they can consider becoming enlightened. Pure Land Buddhism was brought to Japan by an ex-Tendai monk named Honen in 1175. Over time, it splintered into several distinct schools, including one sub-school called True Pure Land Buddhism, or Jodo Shinshu, founded by a disciple of Honen named Shinran. All Pure Land schools tended to be unpopular with local lords because of their egalitarian flavor. Members were often looked down upon. However, among the lower levels of samurai society, in other words, those not directly lords themselves or members of the bakufu, 
Pure Land Buddhism became extremely popular. This is because Pure Land Buddhism allowed someone who committed acts of violence to obtain nirvana, where most forms of Buddhism forbid that. After all, if one chants the Nembutsu devoutly, one could theoretically live a very sinful life as long as one truly yearns for salvation. The other cultural development I would like to discuss is the rise of no theater. No theater arose from several local theater traditions during the 13th century. Originally, no theater was more or less an all-day affair. There would be a series of five plays interspersed with short humorous pieces referred to as kyogen. Modern performances tend to be a bit easier on one's endurance, being two no plays combined with one kyogen play. One of the most defining aspects of no theater is the limited rehearsal time. There's only one rehearsal before each performance, ensuring that each show will be somewhat different. No is performed while wearing masks, thus all of the emoting is done through body language, and only male actors are allowed to perform. No plays tend to have Buddhist themes or be historical stories of some kind, but the Kyogen pieces interspersed with them are purely comic in nature and tend to be rather short, about 10 minutes as opposed to an hour for a normal No performance. One of my favorite Japanese plays is a Kyogen piece called Busu, which involves two servants breaking into their master's store of sugar, which he had told them was poison in an attempt to keep them from eating it. After they discover how sweet it tastes, they eat it all and then are chased around the stage in a slapstick comedy scene by the returning master. Incidentally, the off-the-wall nature of Kyogen is one of the major influences for Kabuki theater when it is created about 400 years later. Because of how long the shows were and the rather rarefied nature of the themes, commoners rarely attended no plays. They were generally reserved for Kyoto aristocrats and, and as they became increasingly cultured and educated, members of the warrior class. That's all for this week. Next time we will discuss the fall of the Ashikaga system and the descent of Japan into a 140-year civil war referred to as the Sengoku period. I say next time rather than next week because next Saturday I will be leaving Seattle to visit my family back in New York. In fact, if you get this episode on release day, there's a chance I'm being frisked by an overly handsy TSA agent as we speak. What this means for all of you is that I may be too busy doing family things to have time to edit all my episodes. I'll do my best to have something out for you next week and the week after that, but I make no guarantees. Apologies for the possible delay, I'll do my best to get everything out to you on time as per the schedule. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.